There is a natural feeling. That if God is running the world and God is just and God is good, that people who do well enough in the service of God should have happy, smooth, satisfying lives. If a person fails, then some kind of corrective will be necessary. But if a person is good enough, does enough, enough mitzvahs, serve God with enough strength and courage and consistency, then his life should be smooth, happy, satisfying, without any serious suffering. This picture is a mistake. The greatest Jews of all time, people whom we could not hope to compare with, had lives with considerable suffering. I would say... Uh, excruciating suffering. Let me just remind you of some facts that you probably all know and then we'll try to give some perspective on, on these facts. What is more precious to a person than his children? What can cause more suffering, more pain, more anguish than problems with children? Well, you're just growing out of the cause end of that anguish. But in in not too many years, you will enter into the receiving end of that anguish. Now, let's just remind ourselves. Abraham had eight children. Ishmael, before Isaac was born. Six more after Sarah died and he remarried. Seven out of the eight were lost to him. Seven out of eight children. Isaac had the twins, Jacob and Esau, and Esau grew up to be a horrible criminal with whom there is strife and competition throughout the ages. Jacob suffered ten of his sons ganging up on Joseph and selling him into slavery. And Jacob spent 20 years believing that Joseph was dead. And may none of you ever experience it, and I include myself as well, but they say that the death of a child is the worst, is the worst thing that a person can go through. Well, Judah lost two children. Aaron, the high priest, lost two children. King David lost two children. The first baby that was born to him from Bathsheba. And then his son Absalom who rebelled against him and started a civil war from whom David ran 
And in the end, he was killed by one of his generals, though David gave orders that he should not be killed. And David went into a paroxysm of grief over the loss of Hashem. Marital problems. Our ancestors were no stranger to marital problems. At one point, Sarah is so uh, angered by something Abraham did, she asks God to judge between them. She paid for that rash statement, but she obviously was in great pain over what she perceived to be Abraham's mistake. Jacob answered Rachel without adequate sensitivity when she asked for children, and Jacob said, Am I in place of God to give children? And the rabbis criticized Jacob. Is that how you answer a woman who's in pain? Leah expresses herself to Rachel. You want my son's gift of flowers? Was taking my husband a small thing? The competition between Leah and Rachel, on whatever level you portray, and whatever ultimate purposes they had in mind, but there was real pain and real competition. King David comes up to Jerusalem with the ark and he's dancing in front of the ark and his wife Michal, the daughter of Saul, looks out the window and sees him and he says, Batibah Belibah. She was dis- disgraced by him. In her heart she had contempt for him and she expressed her contempt for him. And he said, if I'm dancing before God, should I put on airs and stand on my honor? And she was punished by not having children until she died. Personal anguish. Think of a person who believes in God, who loves God, who wants to serve God. A Moses. And as a teenager yet, he has to flee from Egypt. Now, the Torah is very kind to us. He flees from Egypt and the very next chapter is he's already in Midian and he's by the well and he's but he's already in his late 70s. The Torah skips five decades. What happened during those five decades? Where was he? We would say he was nowhere. What was happening to his life? He's a fugitive. He's away from his people. His brethren. And life of the Jewish people in Egypt is going on, and one decade goes by, and another decade goes by, and a third decade goes by, and a fourth decade goes by, and he's off doing other things, whatever they are. Must he not feel abandoned? Abandoned? Only the age of 80 does God appear from him from the burning, the burning bush and tell him to go back to Egypt. That's more than 60 years later. How did he live through the 60 years? Just imagine the Torah would put in a chapter for each of those 60 years. Think how long it would be to get to his final challenge and goal with all of the intervening material which must have been experienced by him as empty, empty, worthless, meaningless. Abraham and Sarah get married. In Urkasi, somewhere in Mesopotamia. Their friends are getting married. Everybody's getting married. People having children and birthday parties and... Uh, sending the children to the school and 
coming of age parties, and Abraham and Sarah have no children for one decade, and for another decade, and for another decade, and for another decade, and in French it's celebrating grandchildren, and grandchildren's coming to one of age parties, and another decade goes by. When they're 75 and 65, they leave Haran to come to Eretz Israel. Still no children. 75 and 65. They come to Eretz Israel, another 10 years go by. 85 and 75. Don't you think they felt that life is passing them by? <coughs> now I say six decades in 30 seconds. But imagine living through the years one by one. Imagine living through the months one by one. And then, at the age of 87, Abraham has a child from another woman. Because Sarah has given up in despair. She's given up in despair. And he has a child, a child whom he loves, who ultimately turns out rotten and has to be chased out of the house. And the Torah says that this was very evil in Abraham's eyes, and God said, so what? You have to do it anyway. Does this sound to you like happiness? Joy, fun, satisfaction, kick off your shoes at night, get out the beer and pretzels and watch TV. That's how I had to be. David Amalek, King David, grew up under conditions where his father was sure that he was a mamzer. No one knew. It's a complicated story. If you want to read it in detail, take out the book of our heritage, the holiday of Shavuos, where Elikito discusses the book of Ruth. He grew up where his father was convinced that he was a mamzer. And therefore he treated him differently from the other children, his other, as he regarded, legitimate children. So much so, that when the prophet Samuel comes to Yishai, and says, God wants one of your sons to be king, call in all your sons, Yishai calls in six, minus seven. So Samuel goes down the list, and each one, God tells him no, and Samuel says to, to Yishai, I'm sorry, God told me one of your sons has to be king, and God has said no to each of these. Haven't you got any more sons? And Yishai says, no. No, I haven't got any more sons. Because, as he believes, it's not his son. It was a question of adultery. And Samuel says, it's not possible. You have to have another son. Because God told me that one is going to be king and these are rejected. So in confusion, he calls in David and Samuel says, that's the one. Yishai can't believe it. David's own brothers who don't know the secret of what's wrong, but they know something's wrong, can't believe it. So much so that after he's anointed as king by Samuel, although it's kept uh, private, later his older brothers make fun of him. They treat him with contempt. He's been anointed by the prophet as king of Israel and they treat him with contempt anyway. Because he's a nobody. He can't be right. And so David says in the Psalms that I suffered a childhood where anything that went wrong was blamed on me. If anything was missing in the town, they said that I stole it even though it wasn't true. He was a total outcast for his whole youth. So, if we think that the life of a successful person serving God is going to be smooth, easy, pleasant, happy, 
full of satisfying experiences, we have to think again. It simply isn't the picture. And if, the, if you look at the Tanoim and Amaroim, the sages of the Talmud, the suffering is written throughout the Talmud, so much so that a sefer called Torah Samincha, who was a student of the Rashba, I'm saying this as much for the tapes as for those of you who may know, in his Drush on Achremos, Drush Memches 48, says that the majority of the lives of the sages of the Talmud were spent in pain. Now, finally, consider how they died. Isaac went blind before his death. Jacob also, nearly blind. Joseph spent time as a slave. Can you imagine being Joseph spending time in jail and spending time as a slave? What that meant to him? Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was hunted down by the king. So he hid in a hollow tree. And when the king discovered him there, he had this tree sawed in half. And that's how Isaiah died. The prophet Isaiah. If the picture we're supposed to have is a picture of God who, if I put on filling, hands out lollipops. And I keep Shabbos, hands out marshmallows. And as you go through life, you get sweet rewards for everything you do and give a pretty good balance of positive or negative then everything will go smoothly that's certainly not the right picture that's certainly not the right picture and the themes of the suffering are really built into the sources and into the creation itself the path of the just says in chapter 1 what is the nature of art, the soul in the world, in the physical world? It's like a princess. A princess who has had to marry a simple farmer. Asks the Mesil Sishon, the Ramchal, what can the farmer do to please the princess? Play music for her? Buy her some tapestries for her windows? Serve her a fine meal? She's a princess. She grew up in the palace. Whatever he will try to do will be so far beneath what she knows, so far beneath what she needs, that the attempt to please her with these rude efforts will be nothing but pain. That's the soul of this world. The soul of the chilek and the kamimau, the soul shares with God some of his transcendental properties, some of his infinity. And it comes into this physical world. What is there in this physical world that could possibly satisfied, please, excite the soul. So the soul experiences this world as a great exile. Indeed, the Mishnah says, against your will you are formed, against your will you are born, against your will you live, against your will you die, and against your will you'll have to give an accounting for your life in front of the Holy One. The soul would not choose to come into this world, to be embodied in this world. For the soul is this anguish. And many, many sources say 
that each person is put into this world to achieve a certain goal, to face a certain challenge. And if you want to know what your challenge is, look at what's hardest for you to achieve. What's hardest for you to overcome. That's where your challenge is. Which means that the struggle is going to be excruciating. It's not 9 to 5, I did my job, I got my bonus, and I'm off. The Torah says that the Jews in the wilderness remembered the foods that they ate in Egypt for free. Chinam. So all the commentators ask, you ate food in Egypt for free? You were slaves in Egypt! Yes. I was a slave from 9 to 5. But when I went home, it belonged to me. My home is mine! I go home and I eat what I want, when I want it, I sleep. It's mine. Yes, I have to work backbreaking labor for the overseer during the day. But the rest of the time is mine. Something belongs to me. But a life of Torah means that nothing belongs to me. That I owe service to God 24 hours a day. In every respect. So there's not that division that you have in other religions between religious life and the, re- and the rest. And then the rest is sort of yours and you can relax. But then the soul is struggling all the time. And in those 24 hours, there are the elements that are hardest to overcome and that's where its major challenge lies. The Torah says that if we do not live up to to our responsibilities adequately, then we will experience disaster. Well, it says it twice. We take out Deuteronomy 28, which applies to our exile. Take out Deuteronomy 28 and read it. You will find that there is nothing in the last 2,000 years, nothing, which was not already described in the Torah long before that. So that even the sufferings of the last 2,000 years, I include all of it. For a person who knows the Torah, takes the Torah seriously, it's not a surprise, not a shock. It's a shock that it had to happen, but not a shock that it could happen. Because the Kodesh Baruch who told us beforehand that these are the possible consequences of failure. So the pain and suffering in the world, including the pain and suffering of the greatest, the worst of the rest of us is something which is not a shock, it's not a surprise, and the sources testify that we should expect it. Now, how can we respond? How can we respond to this necessity of pain that is going to face the Jewish people as a whole and individuals within the Jewish people, no matter how great they are? No matter how great they are, no matter how exalted their service of God. There are several levels of response. The first level was described by my Rebbe a year and a half ago. So this Holomoy Pesach, there was a suicide bombing in Jerusalem on Thursday and Friday night. There was the, the, the bombing in the, in the hotel the, the night of the Seder. And there was one in Jerusalem, and there was one in Haifa, and there was one in Tel Aviv. One right after the other. Sunday night, we were in Beitar, in Rabbi Shul there, and he spoke. 
called Moet. Very hard. And he said, in the Haggadah, we say the words, the Damaya Chayi, quote from Ezekiel, in your blood you shall live. Domayich in Hebrew is plural. Domim shalach, your blood. And we say it twice. Domayich hayi, domayich hayi. So the Rebbe said, there are four there. Now the commentators usually say, two bloods is the blood of, of uh, circumcision and the blood of the Paschal sacrifice. Those two forged our bonds with God and made you know, merit that being taken out of the Exodus. But the Rebbe said, there are four, not two. What about the other two? So he said, one is when Aaron's two sons die. The Torah says, Vayidom Aaron. Aaron was silent. Vayidom. The Dalad Mem from Dam. The silence. The ability to accept. To accept it without challenge. Now listen carefully because I have a, another complimentary remark to make in a minute without challenge to accept it as coming from God and therefore necessary accept it without challenge that's three and the Rebbe said the fourth one is the Vayidom of the Jewish people throughout history echoing echoing Aaron's silence no matter what the tragedy no matter what the disaster the ability to accept to accept without challenge and indeed the Levi Leo one of the Rebbe's Talmudim showed me later, quotes the Chafetz Chaim, that there will be three stages to the redemption. Thinking perhaps of the First World War and the Second World War. And the third will be a time when the Jewish people will be under attack specifically and their atrocities will be horrible and the Chafetz Chaim is quoted there really old, uh, really old, uh, from, uh, no, 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 no. is quoting, quoting the Chafetz Chaim and he says that he was told that the only thing to do at that time is by Yidom he quotes the same word that period when the Jewish population is under attack and suffering atrocities the only thing to do is by Yidom so that's the first level the ability to accept without challenge, without complaint. But, together with that, together with accepting what has happened, go active measures to try to improve circumstances so it won't continue to happen. And they include prayer and improving to the extent that we can our service of the Kodesh Baruch don't confuse accepting the past with being fatalistic about the future. This is a fundamental mistake that people make in thinking about religion in general. Once it's happened, once it's history, then it had to come from God and it had to be appropriate. That doesn't mean it's appropriate for tomorrow. Indeed, it can be a warning to improve things that won't happen tomorrow. We accept the past, but we are not passive or quietistic about the future. We do what we can to try to change the future. Also, expression of pain is appropriate. Expression of pain. That's not the same as challenging. 
Listen, in the Siddur, you have the following words. We say to God, God, why are you sleeping? Open your eyes and see what's happening here. Now those words are taken from the Tanakh. No one had his theology so confused as to think that God was really sleeping or that God's eyes were closed. But it feels that way. It feels that way and it is appropriate to express feelings even when the feelings express a thought which is against what we know to be true. That does not mean that it's inappropriate to express the feelings. On the contrary, it is appropriate to express the feelings. So that when they said, why are you sleeping or why are your eyes closed? That's the way it feels. And one can and should express those feelings as long as one keeps one's mind straight. Don't get one's feelings confused with one's mind. I have to accept without challenge, but I can express my feelings. One of the early Hasidic masters once convened a court. A court to try a case. The defendant in the case was God. And the plaintiff was the Jewish people. And the complaint was that you made a covenant with us and you promised to take care of us and you're not living up to your part of the covenant. That was the complaint. So the court heard the evidence, discussed it, debated it, took a vote, and the vote was guilty. And then they said, Kaddish, and no, Kaddish is not the prayer for the dead. Kaddish is a, a prayer in praise of God and in hope of the coming of the Messiah. What's the point of such an exercise? To give vent to one's feelings that the world is a disaster, that history is going wrong, that the suffering is beyond belief. Yes, to give expression to those feelings. That's appropriate without to confuse one's mind. It's the ability to accept without challenging God together with one's expression of the feelings. Also, there's a terrific temptation when there is disaster, when there is tragedy, when there is suffering, to try to interpret the period as the beginning of the end. This has happened at every time in Jewish history when the Jewish people had suffered terribly. What can we say? The Rambam, in the very end of the at the very end of the Mishnah Torah, says, No one knows how the end will come. No one. Because the verses in the prophets are so ambiguous, so vague, it's impossible to understand them. And there's no oral tradition, says the Rambam. There's no oral tradition of what will happen and how it will happen that the end will come. And since there's no oral tradition, says the Rambam, the sages fell back on interpreting the verses. And the verses really aren't clear enough to understand. And therefore the Rambam says, no one knows how it's going to happen. And therefore he says, it's not something that a Jew should invest his time in investigating. It doesn't add to love of God. It doesn't add to, add to awe of God. It doesn't add to service of God, which alone can help bring it. So the temptation to figure out, is this Kogamagog, is the first phase, or the second phase of Kogamagog, and is it really going to happen, it's not going to happen, is something which should not be a matter of 
major investigation. This is the first stage. To accept, without challenge, to express the pain, without confusing one's mind, and not to investigate how this is going to lead to the end. But, there has to be a higher level. Because the Mesir Sishorim, the path of the, so-called path of the just, written 280 years ago, says that a true servant of God will be in a state of continuous simcha, continuous joy. Now, it's writing 280 years ago, so that's after all the patriarchs, that's after all the sages of the Talmud, that's after the destruction of the Second Temple, Josephus says two million Jews were killed. The Romans were not exactly gentle. That's after the Chamoniki pogroms, the Cossacks were not exactly gentle. So the Ramchal knew about vast, vast Jewish suffering. And yet he says the state of a true servant of God will be one of continuous joy. How can that be? And here is the answer. The human heart can hold simultaneously contradictory emotions. The heart is unlike the mind. If the mind has in it simultaneously contradictory ideas, then it's in trouble. Something's wrong. At least one of the ideas is false. But the heart can hold contradictory emotions and it can be right. It can be right and appropriate to have contradictory emotions simultaneously. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of what's called a love-hate relationship. That does not mean that any mistake is being made. The very same person can inspire both love and hate. And both responses are correct. So, when the Matilda Shisharim says, a servant of God will be in a state of continuous joy that does not mean he's free of pain. He can have pain and joy at the same time. He can experience them simultaneously. I'll tell you a law which may sound strange to you. I say it to you to put it into your memory banks and try to come to grips with and maybe someday you'll be able to relate to it with real feeling and understanding. Person's father dies, and he's very wealthy. So the son says two blessings: Dayan Hanemis, the true judge on the loss of his father, and Atovah Meiti, as good it does good on the inheritance of the money. About twenty years ago, a Rebbe in New York died. His son was sitting shiva. Another Rebbe came to pay a condolence call. They talked about the departed, how great he was, and what a terrible loss it was. And as the visitor got up to leave, he said to the mourner, Mazel Tov Rebbe, because he inherited his father's position. The Torah is very realistic. It's very realistic about emotion. And what a person experiences at that time is a swirl of emotions, sometimes in such agitation that it's impossible to control. And the emotions have both aspects. The person can feel both of them simultaneously. Now, 
My Rebbe told me, when I discussed these matters with him, that since the Holocaust, Purim has never been the same for him. Because, he says, we're celebrating the downfall of a man who threatened to annihilate the Jewish people. And we lived through a period in which a man was successful in annihilating one-third of the Jewish people. That doesn't mean he doesn't rejoice on Purim. He does rejoice on Purim. But he feels the pain also. You go to a Hasana, watch the bride and groom before the wedding is, is, is finalized, before the, the ring is put on the finger. What are they doing? They are in intense prayer for people who are suffering. And in some cases, tears are streaming down their faces. Because that's the moment in which they're on a very high level and their prayers can be successful to help others. So in the midst of their greatest joy, their wedding day, they're praying for other people in pain. Feeling their pain. Does that mean they're not happy to be getting married? Not at all. They're happy and joyous to be getting married and they're feeling the pain of others who are suffering at the same, at the same time. The heart can hold both emotions at the same time. But, if your heart is divided, then there can be a limit. There can be a limit to how much, sub, how much joy you can achieve in a period of pain. Jacob, thinking that Joseph was dead, went into a 20-year mourning period in which he lost prophecy. During those 20 years, he had no prophecy. Why? Because you have to be in a state of joy to experience prophecy. And Jacob was not able to achieve that level of joy which was necessary for prophecy. Now, I don't know anywhere that Jacob is criticized for this. I, King David, said, serve God with joy. Into his Hashem Basimcha. We say it every morning in the 100th Psalm. Yes, that's what King David said. And truly, Jacob, the greatest of the patriarchs, did his best but, under those conditions, he couldn't achieve what he achieved beforehand when he wasn't under those conditions. Even Jacob has limitations. And here we come to an, a crucial point which applies here and applies much more generally. Everyone has limits. And you are expected only to do your best. You are not expected to do what is unrealistic for you to do. That in every other area of life is obvious. But when people come to think about religion, there creeps in a confusion. Aren't we taught that a person has the strength to overcome every challenge? Yes. Yes, we are taught that. A person has the strength to overcome every challenge. So how can you say there are limits? What limits can there be? You have the strength to overcome every challenge. There are still limits. And here's how. Not every obstacle in your way is a challenge. There are some obstacles that you can overcome and there are some obstacles that you cannot overcome. The ones you cannot overcome are not your challenge. Yes, we have the strength to overcome every challenge. That rule should be used 
to distinguish which obstacles are challenges and which obstacles are not. It doesn't say you can overcome every obstacle. It says you can overcome every challenge. And if you have an obstacle which you can't overcome, then that's not one of your challenges. The Gaon of Vilna learned Torah, I don't know, 18 hours a day. The fact that I'm not learning 18 hours a day is not a failure of mine. Because to learn 18 hours a day is not a challenge of mine. I'm not capable of doing that. If I learn four hours without distraction, for me that's a great success. For him to learn four hours without distraction and spend the rest of the day doing other things would be a terrible failure. Because he had much greater gifts than I. That's not my challenge. Abuchanan Asherman says, Maimonides tells us that every person could be as great a tzaddik as Moses. We have free will, we exercise it, we could be as great a tzaddik as Moses. Says Abuchanan Asherman, if I, Abuchanan, would serve God with all my strength for a thousand years, I would not come up to Moses' ankles. So what does Maimonides mean? Says Abuchanan, Maimonides means that just as Moses served God with all his strength, so I could serve God with all my strength. But the results would be very different. Because we don't have the same power. And I believe that's why Maimonides used the word tzaddik. He doesn't say you could be as holy as Moses, as great a knowledge, as great knowledge of Torah as Moses, as pure as Moses, as great a leader as Moses, as close to God as Moses, no, he just says Sadiq. Sadiq means you did right. You did right. You did all that you could, and that's all that can be asked of a person. So, one does not measure oneself against the impossible and declare that, one, that, that oneself is a, is, a, is a failure. Indeed, when you have children, when you have children, you will bang your head against the wall with these problems. Because you will want to give something to your child. And the child can't accept it or he can't accept it from you. And it is excruciatingly painful. Because I know what the child needs. I know what's good for him. I know it will help him. And I want him to succeed. And I can't give it to him. But they can't give it to him. Not always can you give something to a child. And then the challenge will be to live with your inability. To live with your inability to give to your child what your child needs. That will be the challenge. But the fact that you could not give it to the child, produce it for the child, does not mean that you're a failure. Because that is often beyond the person's capacity. So, one looks for joy. One looks for the joy that's possible together with the pain. And one works to produce as much joy as one can. But there are times and circumstances where it's too difficult. And under those circumstances, the failure to feel joy should not be taken as, uh, as a failure. Here's how the tragedy works. A person says, something happened and I'm in pain. Why am I in pain? <coughs> if I really believed in God, if I really trusted in God, I would know that this is good for me. And if I would know that it's good for me, I wouldn't feel the pain. So, why do I feel pain? Because I don't really trust God. I don't really believe in God. You see? This has revealed to me that my trust and my belief are faulty. 
Well then, I'm a bigger failure than I thought, huh? Because now I've discovered that my belief and trust in God are faulty. How does that make me feel? Worse. So now I feel worse. But if I feel worse, that means I'm a bigger failure. Because my belief and trust in God are even less than I thought. And it's a downward spiral. The worse I feel, the bigger a failure I am, which generates bad, more bad feelings. That's a horrible, a horrible tragedy. And the whole thing's a mistake. It should have been cut off at the first step. The pain is there, and pain is inevitable, and it's un- unavoidable. The Bach says that a person who's mourning, Rachman cannot help but feel pain. It's impossible not to feel pain. The Mishnabura says that you say the blessing, Dayan Ha'em, as the true judge, on the pain. The blessing is said on the feeling of the pain. Not on the intellectual realization that something has happened, but on the feeling of pain. And Chazal made a blessing for it. It can't be wrong. Nochem Yishtamzu, the man who, because of a terrible failure of his own, called upon himself all sorts of divine curses. And they all took, took place. And for each terrible thing that happened to him, he said, Gamzu Gotovo, this too is for good. I recognize this from God. Esther of Desther, what blessing. Did this man, who accepted it all, and brought it upon himself, and said, Gamzu Gotovo, this too is for good, on each event, what blessing did he say? He said, Dayan Ha'emes, the true judge. Because he too felt the pain. The pain is inevitable, and sometimes the pain is so great that asking for that joy may be beyond the person's reach. So then time has to go by. Time has to go by to soften the pain. Conditions have to be changed so that the person can open himself up to be able to feel what joy he's capable of. It has to be done with realism. Rabbi Yochanan, the great Rabbi Yochanan, the editor of the Jerusalem Talmud, the beginning of the Amaroi, right after the Tanoim, he lost ten sons. He lost ten sons. We say that the worst thing one can imagine is the loss of a child. He lost ten sons. And yet, and yet, he was the great Rabbi Yochanan. The leader of his generation in the land of Israel, the editor of the Jerusalem Talmud. He found the strength to go on in spite of that terrible, terrible tragedy. Now, how can one do this? How can one find a measure of, of simcha in the midst of this kind of pain? I think an answer is to take the pain Take the suffering and use it as a way of connecting to a Baruch Connecting to God. Because all joy really is an expression of connection to God. What did King David say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall not fear evil. Now, what does he mean? I shall not fear evil because evil won't happen? Is that what King David means? Not at all. He suffered terrible evil. No, he says, I shall not fear evil, because when the evil happens, I can still overcome it. I can still overcome it, I can live with it, I can manage to deal with it. How? Because you're with me. As long as you're with me, I can 
accept the evil, live through the evil, and manage to overcome it. Because you're with me. So that's so, David is speaking from the most excruciating personal experience of evil from the beginning to the end of his life. If that's so, what we have to do is look for ways, look for ways that we can turn that suffering, that tragedy that we undergo into a new means of connecting with the Kurdish world. And if we do that, that will help us find the joy that we're capable of in the midst of the pain. Not to replace the pain and not to, to, to eliminate the pain, but together with the pain. So what did Rabbi Yochanan do? Rabbi Yochanan went with the bone of his tenth child to comfort mourners who had lost children. And he said to them, this is the bone of my tenth child. What is he saying? He's saying, number one, I can feel your pain. I can share your pain. I know what your pain is. And number two, it can be. It can be overcome by adding to it a sense of connection to a good world. And in that way, a measure of simcha together with the pain. About 15 years ago, a family came from Muncie, spent a year in Harnoff, and their 14-year-old son was struck by a bus a few days before Rosh Hashanah and was killed. This was an unbelievable tragedy. It was buried the second day of Rosh Hashanah. I happened to be in the house with them, along with many other people, when uh, someone came in, sat there, someone whom no one knew, a complete stranger. None of the mourners knew him, none of the people from the, from the community knew him, so after some time, one of the mourners said to him, it seems that no one here recognizes you. What are you doing here? So he said, several years ago, we lost a child. Since then, my wife and I read notices. We read notices of death to see where a child has been lost. And we go to comfort the mourners because only someone who's been through it to be able to tell somebody else, to reach somebody else and share with somebody else that day. So what did he do? Instead of saying, why is God punishing me? And why is God rejecting me? And why did he visit me with this horrible suffering and going through a period of bitterness and anger? He asked himself, what can I do with this? In what way can I use this as a way to reach out to a Kodesh Baruch To connect to a Kodesh Baruch So I look for other people who are suffering a similar thing. What Rabbi Yochanan did 1900 years ago 1800 years ago as someone here in Yerushalayim today did in the same spirit looking for ways to use that as a means of connecting. I must tell you I've spoken about these things in quite a number of places. Two years ago I was speaking in Chicago on this thing I was told afterwards that in the audience there was a woman who had lost a child 17 years before and had never made her peace with it. Never made her peace with it and never come to grips with it. She was sitting in the audience and sitting in the row in front of her was another woman who had lost a child recently. 
And as I was talking, the woman behind reached out her hand and put it on the shoulder of the woman in front of her to comfort her. And at that moment, the woman behind testified that she found the measure of peace. That she could reach out to someone else with the same problem and offer comfort gave her a measure of peace. So this is the idea. The idea of connecting through the pain. I'll tell you one more story and then I'll trace it back to a source and then if you have questions, I'll be glad to try to answer them. Um, the Silcha Wasserman, his son, who lived in the United States, was asked to open a call in Los Angeles. And he and his rabbits went out to Los Angeles and they set it up. But he was promised that he would not have to be, uh, be responsible for money and the person who was behind it very quickly got out of it so he was responsible for money and it was very, very difficult. It got so bad that Rebbe Zavatsum went back to Detroit where they had been before. She took up her old job and she sent her husband in Los Angeles enough money to survive on while he was working to put it together. Months went by and it was not successful. Finally, Rebbe called up his Rebbe in Detroit and said, look, it's not working. It's not going anywhere. I think we should just agree, agree that it's a failure. I'll come back to Detroit and take up my old job. We'll go back to living as we live in Detroit. She said, we have no children. They never had any children. Who could go to Los Angeles? There are no schools there for the kind of children that a leader should have. So no one can go there except someone like us who has no children. So that's what we're meant to do. Stay. And he did stay. And he was successful. But Mendel Weinbach was there at the time. She came out for that Pesach and Mendel was there. And he said, that Seder was exalted. Now, you should never know the pain of childlessness. Childlessness is excruciating for husband and wife. But more so for the wife. More so for a woman who doesn't have children. Rachel says to Jacob, give me children or I die. How did Rebbe Zerwasim deal with the pain of not having children? Did she say, I'm rejected, I'm, I'm, I'm discriminated against, God, is, God hates me, why should I make an effort for him if he's not doing for me? And become bitter, disillusioned, depressed? No. Her question was, if I don't have children, what can I do for God if other people who do have children can't do? Where can I do something special? That's how to take a situation which is painful and the pain is there and the pain remains there, but to add to it an element of joy as well. And I believe that this is learned from Pinchas. According to the Zohar Kodesh and other portion. God says to Aaron, you're a high priest. <clears throat> and your children are priests. And all their children to be born to them forever are priests. Now when God said this to Aaron, Pinchas was already born. So by that formula, Pinchas is out. It's Aaron, his children, and all his future generations. The Pinchas isn't the future generation, it's the present generation. So he's out. Okay, now put yourself in Pilchus' position. 
Your whole family are priests, except you. You are excluded. You have a big X on your forehead. Why? No reason. No reason is given. You've done nothing wrong. You're not being punished. You're just out. How do you feel? How do you feel? Now, a prince of the tribe of Shimon commits a crime, a desecration of God's name in public. Who is going to be excited, inspired, driven to avenge God's honor? Pinchas? The one who was rejected and excluded without any explanation or reason? Yes. Pinchas is the one. Pinchas is the one who's, exti- who's inspired to avenge God's honor. That's extraordinary. In terms of human emotions, in terms of human attitudes, that's extraordinary. The natural response is one of bitterness, anger, disillusionment, disappointment, and rejection. No. Not just. And that's why he earns a special covenant of kahuna, being a kohen, so that the high priest came out of him in future generations. This is the model. And I think this is the model that Rabbi Savasman shows beautifully 3,300 years later. Taking the personal tragedy and looking in it for a way to create another connection to a Kurdish whirlpool. And in that way, the person can achieve some level of joy, and with that level of joy, the person can be a servant of a Kurdish whirlpool in the way that the Sosasharam describes, with a heart of joy together with the faith. That's what we can hope for and work for. And that's what the Torah, Torah promises us is, is available to us. But not the false picture of the life of pure happiness, joy, pleasure, and uh, contentment. That's not a life that the Torah describes as one that we should look forward to. Yeah? Do you say that the challenges that you cannot overcome are the challenges that we shouldn't do? Are they not our challenges? No. Let me give you the right words. The obstacles that we cannot overcome are not challenges. That's the key distinction. The obstacles that you cannot overcome are not challenges. Yes, you have the strength to overcome every challenge, but not every obstacle is a challenge. And you use this formula, have the strength to overcome every challenge, to label the obstacles. Those obstacles that I have the strength to overcome are challenges. Those obstacles that are too difficult for me to overcome are not challenges, because they're too difficult to overcome. So the formula is true, but it has the exact opposite effect from what people think. When they hear that you have the strength to overcome every challenge, the person thinks, well, then I'm responsible for everything. No! That formula tells you how to distinguish the things you're not responsible for, maybe the things you can't overcome. How is that different from look at what's hardest for you to achieve and that's your purpose? Hardest doesn't mean impossible. Hardest means where, where your nature shows the greatest resistance and even there, even there, you may have to be content with piecemeal victories. Because at certain, at any one time, you may be capable only of piecemeal victories. And then, over time, it's impossible to predict how far you can go because the world helps you every step of the way. You may be able to do, over time, things that you never thought you could do. But in the meantime, at, a certain, at, a, at one time, when you're making one decision, you know there are limitations of what you can do. Yeah. How do you distinguish the impossible from the time? How do you distinguish the impossible from the challenges? Now listen, this is a crucial, crucial question. I have a partial answer. The question is, how do you get self-knowledge? How do you know your own abilities? I have two suggestions. There may very well be others. You should ask other people and see if you can get more supplementation. One way is to experiment. 
Try it. I don't know if I can handle this challenge or not. So try. And do it explicitly as an experiment. I'll try it for two weeks and see what happens. And after two weeks, I'll reevaluate. And, and this is absolutely crucial, and when you evaluate, don't just evaluate your success in doing this. Take a look at its effects on everything else that you do. It's a success if you as a whole are in a better position. Not just if you succeeded in doing this. You know, um, can I handle an extra hour of study of Torah at night? Let's see. So you go through the two weeks and you put in the extra hour of study and you do succeed in doing it. But because now you're behind at work and because it's hard for you to get enough sleep, you're irritable with respect to your wife and you haven't got time to be with your children and your prayer is, is uh, very hurried and so forth and so on. So on balance, it may be a loss. So one thing to do is experiment and evaluate, and evaluation is a total evaluation, sort of bottom line evaluation. And the other thing is to ask other people who are older, who have had experience in advising, those who are in developmental stages similar to yours, who you invest in a relationship with them so that they can know you, and ask them what they think you're capable of. Because, as in any area of human development, there are those with the insight who can gauge what is a reasonable challenge and what is not. In sports, you have a trainer. And the trainer says either push harder or don't push so hard. Because he's afraid you'll injure yourself. And he knows better than you do what you can do. Because he's been training people for 20 years and he sees people like you and he knows what you can do. Similarly, there are what you might call spiritual trainers who know from experience what a person is capable of. They can tell them this is the right challenge, that's not. Take this with peace field, do it part, part, part way, add on more, another month or two, another two months. So those two things, experimentation and getting advice, are ways to come to know. And these ways are fallible. They're fallible. I don't say they're guaranteed, but they're at least ways to get reasonable information, which can be useful in, in, in making a decision. I, it has been said that the Chuba movement as a whole is guilty of painting a rosy picture and giving the impression that if you put on film and you keep kosher, then everything will be fine. I hope that tonight we have um, inserted a corrective to that picture and, uh, and given you a much more realistic picture. It is the way to have as good a life as possible. But good does not translate into pure pleasure. Okay. Uh.